Fantasy Animation is an online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. As well as this podcast, Fantasy Animation publishes a weekly blog featuring regular contributions from professional animators and academics and offering up creative insight into the history, theory and practice of making fantasy stories through cell, stop motion and digital animation. So, whether you're a budding creative, a fan, a student or a researcher interested in these overlapping medias, mediums and genres, be sure to find out more at fantasy-animation.org. But for now, do enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And your wisecracking and somewhat sardonic sidekick for this week is Alex Sargent. I knew that I knew something like that was coming, um, <laughs> given the theme. Uh, in fact, we are taking on another listener's choice voted for by you on the theme of favourite buddies or unlikely pairings in the animated fantasy film or TV area. You suggested, we listened, and the result is that today we're talking about rhubarb, not to be confused with rhubarb and custard, which we'll get into a debate about because... I, for a long time, thought it was called Rhubarb and Custard, but it's not. Uh, a British animated children's television programme created by uh, Grange Calverley, uh, and as we'll go on to discuss, directed by British animator Bob Godfrey. Now, Godfrey has a particular connection to our special guest, but before we get started, uh, watching Rhubarb, I was struck by, I think, three things as an animation um, kind of fan. Rhubarb's place in British animation history, uh, kind of animated style and the history of aesthetics and the, the series' relationship to children's illustration. Um, and I think the kind of um, the curious nature of the boiling aesthetics, so how the, the drawings seem to shake and, and shimmer as the, as the episodes unfold. Um, Alex, as our resident fantasist, what did rhubarb mean to you? Um, a lot and not very much at the same time. I think the, the rhetoric of fantasy, which we talk about a lot on this podcast, is, is quite chaotic in the whole show in that there are some episodes where rhubarb travels to like distant kingdoms or has um battles with gods and then there are episodes where he becomes like an estate agent or um or does or does the dishes um so i'm very interested in the sort of um ways in which fantasy is woven in different episodes and as the series as a whole so lots to talk about Absolutely. Um, and it won't just be us. We're delighted to be joined by Begita Hosia, a, a London-based media artist, animator, curator, who works with expanded animation and performance drawing. Now, in her work, she combines animation, video and interactive technology. Uh, she's also a professor in moving image within the School of Film and Media and Performing Arts at the University of the Creative Arts in Farnham, um, which we'll come on to shortly. Begita, many thanks for joining us to talk about rhubarb. Hello. Now, you were previously head of animation at the RCA for, um, from 2016 to 2018, and you made the move to, to the UCA a couple of years ago. Um, and this is where the Godfrey connection really comes in. So um, could you perhaps outline a little of this relationship for those listeners unfamiliar with Godfrey's um, relationship to the university? So um, Bob Godfrey um, started an animation course in 1969. So my colleagues tell me initially it was um, it was just um, you know sort of teaching students animation, and I think it was 1970s to 71, sometime about that. It actually became a proper BA degree, and this was in um, West Surrey, Surrey College of Art in Guildford, as it was called at the time, because UCA encompasses a number of small different art colleges in Kent and in Surrey, and it, it, it sort of incorporated West Sur Surrey College of Art. 
So um, Bob Godfrey set up this course. Apparently, um, he was very interested in employing animators. For, so I don't know. I, I imagine he paid them, hopefully. But um, he used to work there part time. And there's a very good uh, documentary. The BBC have got it on their website and you can also see it on YouTube. It's called The Craftsman and it's from 1971. It's about 10 minutes long and it's an interview with Bob Godfrey. And he's actually at in Guildford at West Surrey College of Art and he talks about animation. He talks about... Um, I really like about he has such an enthusiasm and a vision for animation he says it's a it's just amazing it doesn't have to be like live action it can be anything it's really special he said at, at the moment you know 1971 animation is quite a small thing but in 20 years time I can see animation becoming a major thing and so we had this huge enthusiasm for animation um, later on, I think it was 85 or something like that, he was also involved in setting up the first animation course at the RCA. Um, but um, my association with him is through UCA, University for the Creative Arts. And because he was he had set up the animation course there, he was the first person to run it. And so after he passed away, his archives were left to UCA. Um, we have something like 420 boxes of material. And there's some amazing history in there. The films have now gone to the BFI, but we've got papers and drawings and all kind of interesting stuff. So we're very, um, yeah, we see him as our founding father, in a sense. And um, I think he has a very important place in British animation history, which we can we can go on to talk about. He really is um, a, a very key seminal figure. Oh, absolutely. I, I had the pleasure and, and reviewed the recent um, event, the, the cartoon animation satire and subversion, which I know you've put some of the films very recently up on online. And that was very much um, a sort of, well, on the one hand, an academic conference, more traditional, I guess, in, in, in scope in terms of looking at his his work across, uh, whether it's Rhubarb or Henry's Cat, um, and kind of anchoring him to a variety of sort of surrealist traditions, perhaps. Um, and also, I think that animation's kind of radical an anarchic potential so it's interesting that you sort of suggested that he he had this vision for what animation could kind of be I guess um and it'd be interesting I think to talk a little bit about that in relation to, to a program like um rhubarb which sort of I, I said to, to Alex um uh, I guess off air or unofficially that this seemed I suddenly had lots to lots to say about it because it seemed to sort of bear out a lot of um areas of, of interest of mine and aesthetics and 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 I'm I'm not um, too kind of familiar with the, the the I guess the British television of this 70s period but it sort of prompted me to have a little look and see what was happening and 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 so yeah I, I'm sort of interested in situating him within this broader context of of British uh, animation history which which so often I think is is sort of yeah it's and this maybe is true of animation's relationship to live action more broadly, but British animation as animation or US animation's poor second cousin or poor second relation. And it's actually certainly in the 70s and the the the, the different waves of British animation history that, that writers like Van Norris have written about. Um, it's not just Ardman, there's so much stuff kind of going on. Um, yeah, in terms of in terms of what animation could could do. And and so is this something that, that you sort of see in in Godfrey's work in terms of um, yeah, he's starting to kind of test the boundaries a little bit or have a little play with, because I, I, I mean, reading up about him and, and the kind of films and the sort of um, material that he'd worked with 
worked on before, um, whether it's sort of, uh, I think I saw um, Help, the Beatles film Help and Casino Royale, he animated for, um, um, or was an uncredited advisor on Yellow Submarine, which is obviously a film that we've we've, we've looked at and still gives me a headache. So yeah, I mean, do, is this where we're sort of, or do we see Godfrey's um, ideas around animation's potential in something like rhubarb because this is 19 early 1970s um is well, this is this what the program's doing even before then if we look at um he connects us to um british animation history after the war so what is very interesting is you've got people um who are refugees from europe coming to britain so you've got john john halas so i'd say john halas and bob godfrey are two of the, the biggest um figures in, in this kind of uh, early British animation for me. I, I'm an, a huge fan of John Halas. I actually collect all his old books and wow. I think I've got, I've got every one of them, I think. <laughs> and and um, so he's obviously very known for Animal Farm and this kind of um, mid-century modern style. And But, but a very under-research studio is a Larkin studio run by Peter Sachs. And Peter Sachs was a Jewish refugee from Europe who was actually interned in the Isle of Man. And he um, set up the Larkin studio. And he was doing work, you know, even more amazing than UPA, but doing very sort of advertising and and, um, industrial films. And this is where Bob Godfrey got his first animation job. Bob Govery had been doing kind of commercial art and then apparently he met um, Peter Sachs and um, Peter Sachs said something like, um, what did he say? Can you draw? And Bob Govery said, oh, am I getting this right? He said, no. And he goes, I start on Monday, something like that. But oh, I might have got that wrong. Don't quote me on that. I might have got that wrong. But anyway, so Peter Govery started working for um, this advertising studio and um, the Larkin Studio, I mean, it's in that book, if you're interested, it's like a footnote in that book, Cartoon Modern, which talks about uh, mid-century modern animation and what was going on in Britain. It's really under-researched, but so fascinating. Yeah. And um, so Bob Godfrey was working there. They were doing commercials and they were they were really experimenting. And from there, Bob Godfrey went on and started up his own studio and um, he was making money by, as I said, commercials, short industrial films. And he was really actually experimenting. It wasn't all hand-drawn. There's a lot of collage work. And um, as he picked up, he actually knew all of these amazing people. So he knew um, Dick Lester, for example, who directed some of the Beatles films and even went on to direct one of the Superman. So he had a bit part in one of the Beatles films. He was friends with this performance artist called Bruce Lacey. Um, and he he also hung out with kind of goon show type people. So he really comes out of this very anarchic, post-war, British, um, irreverent scene and some people have, somebody told me a story once that because he was um, in the war and he was actually part of the Normandy landings. I mean, I think we just forget today. He must have had PTSD, for goodness sake. Being in a war must be so scarring and stressful. And people have suggested that his kind of irreverence, his hatred of bureaucracy, apparently he didn't really like sending invoices or filling out forms. Apparently this is linked to his experience in the war and he never wanted to have a life like that again. 
So, so when we, um, Jim Walker and myself, looked at the themes for the cartoon animation satire and subversion conference, we very much took it from um, the the career of Bob Godfrey. Nobody actually did a paper about Bob Godfrey, but we took the themes from his career. You know, an interest in Dada and surrealism and what was going on in art, the the scarring um, experience of being in a war and um, a kind of political tradition of cartooning in Britain that goes back to Hogarth. So we're very interested in these different themes that come out in his work. And I think he's an enormously fascinating and innovative character. I mean, just to, you know, I'm going on a bit, but just to, to continue in this vein, he was also a great mentor. So um, apparently... Um, Dick Williams used to sometimes work in his studio in the basement when he couldn't find a space. So he nurtured the early Richard Williams. Um, There was, you know, he also did this very seminal TV show, do-it-yourself film animation TV show. And so many people have said to me they got into animation because of that TV show. It was um, really empowering, you know. Animation seemed like a real mystery. How do I do this? It's so difficult. And then there was this TV show showing you how to do it. So he was very – this TV show was really um, inspirational. But also he employed a lot of his students. He employed a lot of young animators. And so many animators working in the UK today – were interns there or animators there. So I'd say he has an enormous influence um, in British animation. Wow. I, I sense this is going to be one of those episodes where I play sort of the role of, of some of the listeners, I guess, in that I'm obviously learning all of this as we're speaking. And, and it's I knew nothing of all, this man's life and, and the sort of huge pool of, of work he's done outside of this cartoon, which I was aware of because it's sort of a, a, a nostalgic favourite of a lot of people. So I wonder, for my benefit and for some of the listeners, what role does um, Rhubarb and Custard have in Godfrey's career? Is it, it seems to be one of his more well-known pieces. Is it one of his more typical or atypical pieces? Sort of what's the relationship between the wider Godfrey that we're speaking about right now and, and this sort of show about a, a, a dog and a cat? Um, I wouldn't, I don't know if you'd say it was exactly typical because he, so he's got some earlier work like the do-it-yourself cartoon kit, very, very funny and um, uses a lot of collage. So in some of his, or, um, and Henry 9 to 5 uses collage and drawn aspects and as well, Great uses quite a lot of collage. So he's got different styles. So stylistically, um, he, he, he doesn't have a typical look. There's different um, kind of techniques that he uses. Um, this, I suppose, is sort of um, mid-career. And um, he does say in interviews that, um, that, that you know, he, very, he didn't really have much to do with the script on this one. He also says in interviews that they lost quite a lot of money and they weren't paid very well. And Henry's Cat, which came later than this, they had much more control over the script and they also had more control over the finances. Um, Stan Hayward did the script on that one. And so so that was more, uh, they had more money. So while they were doing... um, while they were doing Rhubarb and Custard, the studio was also doing a much more serious project, which was great, which was um, about um, uh, Brunel, who did the engineer... A Victorian engineer, uh, Ismabad Kingdom Brunel, and um, that actually went on to win an Oscar. 
So it was kind of it was kind of funny. Uh, it kind of reflected on empire, but it was also serious. So I guess it was like the horrible histories type genre, you know, with a bit of humour, but some history in it as well. So great. Yeah. I was reflecting on the Victorian era. I mean, so for me, I've encountered... Yeah, I mean, so, I've encountered... I'm just trying to... Well, first of all, I've encountered Isambard Kingdom Brunel because it just took me back to a school trip I had when I was about 10 years old, so I haven't heard that name in a while. Um, but uh, something, I suppose, I was looking... So I was trying to get my, my bearings and trying to get a foothold in, in Bob Godfrey in exactly the way that Alex was kind of saying. What was his style? Um, was there a uniform style? Um, and so watching Rhubarb, I was immediately... Yeah, I mean, we can go into the, the sort of... Um, the particular kind of aesthetic style that is very yeah I mean you can make a lot of debates in the same way you make debates about Ardman and imperfection and the, the kind of pleasure of that kind of compositional looseness you can make all of those claims or stake all of those claims in relation to something to something like rhubarb but I hadn't really realized from what you're saying his sort of pivotal place or sort of you know this I know that British animation history so the first episode of this is the 21st of October 1974 um and as you said, it kind of coincides, I guess, with the relative kind of acceleration or growing popularity of animation as it moves into the 80s and, and 90s. And, and and actually, Van Norris, who I mentioned before, I just did a little look up at the, the ch kind of chunking of British animation history. And it seems like um, we have this first wave of British animation from 1955 to 1978. Um, and so this was a period, and this is a, a, a kind of quote from Norris, that it kind of presented a new adaptability and pragmatism of a functional medium, one that was increasingly being found in propaganda shorts, information cartoons and cinema advertising, um, alongside a few kind of personal, more experimental projects. And so it seems like this um, uh, rhubarb and then I guess later um, Henry's Henry's cat, but rhubarb is is sort of in the middle of this kind of or, or certainly at the tail end of this first wave where you have the Leeds Animation Workshop and Joanna Quinn and the Quay brothers as we start to move towards the second wave from the late 70s into the 90s where you have kind of Channel 4 funding um, kind of flourishing period according to, to kind of Van Norris um, a growing industry and cultural acceptance animation was more than just a medium for, for children and I hadn't quite kind of placed him in that way but it seems like he's a mentor that, to that He's a mentor to that generation, if you see what I mean. He's probably come yeah. before them. But, um, I mean, he was um, – Terry Gilliam basically used to work for him. He was doing cut-out collage animation before Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam was on his do-it-yourself um, film animation TV series showing his collage, but Terry, but he did all this before Terry Gilliam. I think um, Godfrey's really underrated. Possibly yeah. one of the reasons for that – is that he did a number of so-called sex comedies and people found them really sexist. He even referred to himself once as a former misogynist, jokingly. Now, I think I'm a feminist, so I'm allowed to talk about this. And um, he, his trope is really, it's kind of a small, pathetic man and um, a sort of a voluptuous, overpowering woman. And I actually find them funny and that I'm laughing at the man for being so pathetic. Um, so I think that these these films are really due for a rereading, and I think that um, people have been too easy to dismiss him just for this portion of his work. You know, it was of its time. Also, there is some imagery which nowadays, in our you know, when we're more so sensitive to colonialism, post-colonialism, the British Empire, there are a few images which you might find stereotyped. Again, I'm not excusing that. 
be the first person to shoot anybody down for sexism or stereotypes of any kind. But I think we also have to take into consideration just the period he was working in. He wasn't exceptional. He was using a language and commonly accepted codes of that time. And um, I think we can look at his work critically and still find a lot of really interesting and inspiring material in it. I think the other context to throw out there, and this is probably a more implicit context that's sort of bubbling around in the cultural ether of this time period, rather than something that I suspect Godfrey was explicitly aware of, although, you know, I'm, I'm learning on this podcast, so do, do correct me otherwise, but um, is that obviously, we've talked about this a bit on the show before, is that the sort of late 60s or 70s is an odd period for sort of the lexicon and, and um, language of fantasy and the, the, the sort of counterculturalism and and fantastical imagery are becoming kind of part of the same weapon against a perceived, you know, antiquated um, old order of things. So it sounds like another thing that's going on, and, I, and it struck me while watching Rhubarb, um, was this sense of sort of um, surrealism without a direct um, point of attack or critique, but in a way that's the point in that in that the, the 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 critique is against sort of order in general rather than um, some direct target. So it, it did remind me of things like Yellow Submarine and, and that we've talked about before. It actually remind me of you know things like sort of the Bakshi cartoons in America, although you know a very different cultural context, of course. So there's also that to go on there. He's a sort of fantasist yeah. in 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 a world where fantasy has a certain radical energy just by being a fantasy. Yeah, and that's quite interesting that you connect it to that countercultural movement because you can also see in a lot of the comics and um, imagery of the time, like in Bakshi, some very um, mm-hmm. sexualized images of mm-hmm. women, idealized. There's this whole idea of sexual liberation, which probably didn't empower the women very much. They were objects, but it was part of a, gener- a general sort of feeling of liberation. And in in retrospect, we can look back on it and we can think, well, actually, I don't think those women necessarily benefited that much. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But yeah, that is quite interesting to look at all that sexism in the light of um, this liberationary feeling. So in the spirit of kind of reappraising something like rhubarb, um, we can start to pull in these different different threads then the kind of counter countercultural movements that you're describing Alex and that you are sort of like certainly between us the, the resident sort of Bakshi expert um it's sort of interesting to see something that was broadcast uh, sort of half past five it's four minutes long on BBC in these in these ways and I, I think I'm sort of even as I learn more about about Godfrey and, and, and Rhubarb and trying to sort of cite him in these various contexts um it brings something else to some of the things that hopefully we'll talk about in relation to that sort of handmade quality, the the um, and the appeal that's made to, to children on the one hand, perhaps um, these sorts of uh, I don't know. You talked about the aesthetic style earlier, and I'm um, you know the, the the shaky drawings, the fact that these evoke images from from um, children's illustrative books, the fact that they kind of almost have this imperfect improvisational construction. I'm, I'm interested, we, you're both using these phrases like bubbling and and limited or imperfect. So what, what for the person that doesn't understand animation on the podcast, what, what is going on in the style here? What's technically happening to create this kind of what I would call storybook or, or or pictorial quality to the animation. It looks like it's on a on a piece of paper coming to life. It is. So basically, there's there's interviews of, um, that I've read from um, 
Godfrey and he says that the um, style actually came out of economic necessity because they weren't getting very much to do this. So they thought, okay, we're going to do it on paper with marker pens. So you've got the white paper in the background. They're using marker pens. Now, he actually says the colour green came about because they had lots of green um, available in the studio. He just said, we had lots of green. So, um, you know, let's make it green. The dog was supposed to be black. The writer's original dog was black. But, you know, we have lots of green. And then he said, um, uh, then there's an awful, horrible cat suddenly appears on the fence. So what else have we got? Shocking pink. We'll make the cat pink. So he's just making out that it was all improvised, spontaneous, just happened. Uh, And he said that the characters were based on Sid James and Hancock. (laughs) <laughs> so it's, it's very because i mean there are other things i'd like to talk about in relation to richard Briers um more generally i think but um it's interesting that those are the those are the sorts of reference points and and um i guess one of the things about british animation that it's often seen to distill and i think this came out of the 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 event um earlier this year that the sort of the britishness of it and yes we have this sort of his his place within um british animation history but uh, as you said kind of broader brought the broader context of sort of uh, political cartooning and political cartooning traditions but it seems yeah I hadn't I hadn't I wasn't aware that the connection was to sort of British television you know that there's a there's reference points to certain kinds of comedians and a a Britishness in that sense I mean I'm also obsessed with David Jason's roles for Cosgrove Hall his voice work for Cosgrove Hall and and what Richard Briers was in the early 1970s I can't remember if this is was was pre or post the good life um, but presumably he's our he's our star voice because he does all of the voices. He does the um, I think if if the 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 images and, and and are very sparse, there are no generally speaking there are no backgrounds. The kind of space and and a kind of geographical organisation of where things are. I just about know where the tree is. I think in relation to the house. But other than that, I think I'm all over the place. Um, and so yeah, I mean Richard Briers's voiceover does a really important kind of thing. It's a nice welcoming it's part of that kind of repeating constant and it's interesting that you mentioned the economic uh, i guess the pressures or the the sort of um uh yeah the the, the lack of of money because it's interesting that the style of the series seems to be fundamental to its identity as episodic television. You know, this idea that it's predicated on repetition and reiteration and seriality. And, and so you've got the required economy of the lo-fi limited style of these marker pens on paper, but it also works really well given that it's the, given that it's a sort of serial narrative. It's, it's very much, I think it helps the narrational and, and character logical compression that these because they're only four minutes you know these are quite short um off air alex said it's not a program that you would binge watch um but yeah i think that kind of that those techniques of graphic reduction that are familiar we've talked about on the podcast this idea of condensation that you build in this case i think the the, the audience's vocabulary through an expressive series of expressive and colorful visual references you've got that kind of pictorial brevity and economy of representation um but it's interesting that it came out or to hear that it came out of uh, a kind of economic necessity because I think it works really nicely with these quite um, uh, loosely drawn icons, signs and, and symbols. 
So he describes it as a radio play because it's the narrative is very much carried by the voiceover and the um, images are like moving illustrations and boiling for anyone who doesn't know what that is. It's yeah. just a technique where somebody has animated quite quickly and um, they've not taken care to match all the outlines carefully. So the outlines appear to deform and move, which gives it a life force that it may not have. I'd like to say something about the whiteness in the background. I think it's oh, yeah. what I think is um, what, what I found very interesting about getting to know something about Chinese animation and um, Chinese um, watercolours is something that they call leaving blank. So there's the idea that part of the page is left white in order that the viewer's mind uh, fills in the blanks so that you are... It's an interactive experience. You're filling in the gaps. And um, I find that very interesting. So there's this, this um, Chinese notion of um, yeah, leaving blank in the traditional watercolours, which is carried through into Chinese watercolour animation. And that sort of applies here, that our mind fills in the space. Yeah, that's really interesting. That echoes really uh, closely with uh, a literary theorist of fantasy who talks about... Um, her name Christine Brooke Rose, and she talks about um, basically fantasy. To evoke the reader's imagination, you either overdetermine the reader or you underdetermine the reader. So you either um, describe something that cannot exist and make the reader catch up. A dragon appeared in my office, or you underdetermine it. So you say something with a level of ambiguity, which requires the the, the reader to fill in the back. Something strange happened last Wednesday. Um, so it sounds like almost the, the, a lot of what the, the the fantasy rhetoric of this show is, or if through this this boiled effect, this this drawn effect, lots of whites, lots of gaps, quote unquote, is to is to encourage us to fill in the gaps. Um, yeah, that's also hmm. Scott McCloud in Understanding Comics writes about hmm. that as well. He writes about that um, the less detail there is in a character design the more universal it becomes, the more we can insert ourselves into the character, the more particular it becomes, the more it looks like a person, the more the more distance we are. So it sort of chimes in with Scott McLeod. I mean, what really, I think this thing about boiling, because I, I had a question about, and, and, I, and you know, this is something that we can, we can kind of talk about. So that this, this I, I know boiling through Dan Tor's work in relation to kind of early cinema and this overlaying of um, sketches that were, didn't quite line up that the, the sort of replacement drawings didn't quite create this illusion of fluid movement, but had the kind of staccato effect. Now, in the case of rhubarb, there are instances where even shots where nothing is moving, the, the landscape shots, that it seems that the, the, the drawings are kind of shaking. And, I'm, and I find it really curious because I was trying to watch okay, what is in the shot that's that's moving? And in some cases, it might be rain or a bird, and so that would, would necessitate a replacement drawing. But uh, a lot of the establishing shots, and not not for all of them, but the, the, the world seems to be continually on edge and, and moving, even when characters within the frame aren't moving. Um, and certainly there are, and, and given that a lot of the episodes begin with um, one or both of Rhubarb and Custard asleep, I don't. I can't imagine or can't count how many episodes begin with that alarm clock going off, and they must have hit the synonyms when they were typing the word sleep, because you get awoke from his slumber, awoke from you know, and, and so we 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 kind of enter into this into this short four minute cartoon when the characters wake up. But there are so many instances where the the agency of the image was just 
was really striking and I sort of really I didn't know where to look and my eye was looking all the different incremental movements between each of the frames so I thought that the, there was something like the boiling that was both one came out of the labor of production but also that it was this really striking aesthetic choice in all kinds of ways um even when nothing in the image was moving i thought boiling was really something that came to the to the fore and the streakiness of the pens and and when you go over a piece of paper with a marker pen and it bleeds really into the paper and almost that the papers have got holes in it because you've been you know or the paper's getting thinner and thinner as it becomes saturated with ink so i really liked that kind of streakiness of the of the image which which I think that the new kind of reboot series, Rhubarb and Custard 2, um, tries to replicate, but does so on computer. And it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking while you were saying there that um, in traditional animation, we sort of advise people to always, if a character is still, to make them slightly, slightly boil, just to give them the appearance of life. And I was thinking, why is that? And I thought, oh, the difference between a live person and a dead person is breathing. So it's almost mm-hmm. as if through boiling their breathing, the world is breathing. It just shows a life force. Yeah, I've not thought about there's, that. Yeah. There's also a certain sort of, I don't know, transformative energy around this whole thing. If, if you know, if to be crude, if the drawings are sort of coming to life through this style, there's a sense that like everything can be turned into anything else at one moment. A lot of the episodes are very interested in characters transforming. Like there are episodes where Rhubarb sort of dresses up as a crow or becomes a sea captain or becomes a diver um, and, or, you know, um, or Custard um, pretends to be a monkey or, you know, there's lots of, lots and lots of moments where um, characters assume other roles, take on other forms. Um, and even things like, I, I was trying to sort of get my head around the rules, which I realised about two episodes in was a stupid thing to try and do. Um, but, you know, when you first start watching it, you're thinking, okay, so is Rhubarb the dog of this house? And he has all these adventures in the garden. And then you slowly discover that actually Rhubarb is the owner of this house. And he's a sort of man dog walking around um, in, in a world of animals, which I'm, I'm sure will will Chris loves to talk about the difference between mice as men and men as mice. Um, so we can chat about that maybe um but yeah there's just there's certain like everything can be transformed into anything else there is nothing fixed um and that's sort of linking back to what i was saying earlier about the surrealist radical quality of it is that that's perhaps if it has any kind of politics or behind its aesthetics it's that sense that there is nothing fixed and that comes through both in the style and and the, and the narrative yeah, I've got a quote from Bob Godfrey here. He says, um, animation is not live action. Um, and um, th- this is something I've heard that him say a few times. He says, basically, there's no gravity in animation. Animation's free. It can fly. It can go anywhere. And I don't think people realise this. They're too earthbound. It's not earthbound. It's fantasy. You've got to have a very whimsical mind for animation. I think you've got to be able to take off and to be not of this world. You can create a whole world which is not like the physical world that we live in. The worst thing animation can do is start copying live action. That's a quote from him. And um, I've heard him say things like that several times. So he absolutely is on your side of fantasy. Mm, Terrific. Well, that's good. That means I can stay for another week. Um, But that's a really uh, great quote. Much better put than I could. Yeah. Apparently he was a performer as well. He loved um, performing. As we've seen, he has bit parts in different um, shows and he's friends with performance artist Bruce Lacey. And, um, you know, 
friends with all kind of comedians and pop stars and hanging out in bars in Soho. I think he would have been a real laugh to have a drink with. Okay, we're just going to pause the conversation there about rhubarb and custard to talk about the also could have beens, would have beens, might have beens of this week's for our listener choice. But also very quickly to um, say a quick apologies to Laura Weston, who is a senior lecturer at Staffordshire University, who very kindly suggested rhubarb and custard on Twitter. Um, it was a great suggestion. We took it, we ran with it, and we got so excited about it that we forgot to name check you at the start there, Laura. We apologise. Thank you for the suggestion. Um, and please do keep joining in with the conversations with us on on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Reddit. Yes, but that wasn't the only suggestion that we had. We had a variety of suggestions across social media. Um, So we're going to read a a few um, now, first of which was from Hannah Newman-Smart, so a regular contributor to our blog, who suggested, well, actually two unlikely pairings in terms of buddies from the same film. So Uzma and Kronk, and Pasha and Kuzco from The Emperor's New Groove. So this is obviously a film we've, we've done um, previously on the podcast uh, earlier in the year. Now, yeah, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And thank you, Hannah, for that suggestion. Um, I'd probably go with Uzma and Kronk as my absolute favourite, because I think certainly if social media is anything to go by, Kronk is gathering a kind of bit of momentum um, for various reasons. I have a little look about that. But um, yeah, Uzma and Kronk, I think, as Emperor's New Groove is a wonderful suggestion. So thank you, Hannah. Yeah, wonderful. I think the only reason we discounted it was that if we start redoing episodes we're never going to be able to get out of this podcast alive so we must keep moving forward Um, and in the spirit of moving forward we had loads of suggestions on reddit most of them from uh really interesting high fantasy uh series that chris has absolutely no idea about and basically doesn't understand most of the words written on there but that all the more all the more terrific as far as i'm concerned but i'll give two quick shout outs to um gruda alpam who suggested pinocchio and jiminy cricket which i think was a wonderful idea um iconic and archetypal was um was their suggestion there and then chris obviously obviously james lannister and brienne of tarth from game of thrones what do you think about that yeah. I mean, it took me a while to, to read on your notes that GOT stood for Game of Thrones. So that's where I am with this. Um, uh, it's a great so pairing. And it's a really interesting example of how Game of Thrones plays with sort of character allegiance and all this kind of stuff. Um, and the way those two play out throughout the whole series. Um, one day we will do Game of Thrones, Chris, one day, but it is not this day. Good. Gives me a chance to, to do some watching. Uh, we had a couple of suggestions on Twitter, actually, for, for Pixar movies. So Vincent Gain, uh, a colleague from King's College London, uh, mentioned Sadness and Joy from Inside Out. Both emotions, very different, the journey of discovery for both. Uh, and then also Victoria Mullins, a PhD student, mentioned, of course, the Toy Story films, but particularly Toy Story 4. She says that it's interesting to see how Buzz becomes less and less central. I'd certainly agree with that. I think the first film is very much a, the Woody and Buzz show, but as the sequels progress, Progress, uh, we get a slightly different sort of um, series of buddies, if you like. I think Jesse, certainly in the second film, maybe, um, I don't know, Lotso and Buzz's, uh, Woody's relationship to Lotso, perhaps. But she says, yeah, Toy Story 4 could yield a really interesting discussion. Um, yeah, well, the relationship between Buzz and Woody and the cornerstone of the franchise and integral to the narrative fibre of the first three films, poor Buzz is very much relegated for the fourth film, what she calls Woody's movie. So thank you, Victoria. I think it's an interesting point she raises because I think, I think she's right. I think the first movie is very much a buddy movie, or at least a, yeah. a, a, um, an origin story of a buddy movie. Yeah, the coming together of two mismatched people to find reconciliation. But, but for some reason, the dynamics of that series just don't work if you put 
it's interesting there hasn't been um they haven't had the temptation to make it more about buzz rather than woody they've gone the other way around um mm. and that's interesting i don't know what that says about either of the characters or the way they're used um but yeah but but a good suggestion nonetheless absolutely we have we have a final one here um well we have many more on our various social media strategy and thank you for sending them all in but the final one we'll mention is from matt denny who is a uh, teaching fellow at the university of warwick and he suggested uh, the movie uh, road to el dorado which is a film i think i have not seen but i've seen the trailer for because it used to be like packaged on a vhs of mine probably for toy story when i was a kid um it's a DreamWorks movie. Um, it's it's one of the, the sort of commercial flops, but Matt obviously found a lot in it. He says it has exactly the kind of issues of the colonial gaze that you'd expect of a film like El Dorado, but it's a lot of fun, I think. And he mentions a lot of um, anthropomorphic horses and all this kind of fun stuff. So um, I think that's a movie potentially to visit further down the line, Chris. No, I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's, it's a blind spot, certainly, within my um, kind of contemporary animation viewing. It's the same year, interestingly, so 2000, uh, the same year as The Emperor's New Groove. So I think totally different ways, perhaps, of uh, treating, um, yeah, ideas of kind of yeah, colonialism, in this case, um, the New World, El Dorado, Spain. So, yeah, something quite interesting about um, what those two films are doing slightly differently and, and also how those two films um, come from different um, visual and, and ideological traditions. So, yeah, we'll put a pin in that and, and hopefully travel the road to El Dorado uh, soon. Cool. So that leaves us with only one final job before we get back to our discussion with um, Begita, which is to set up the theme for next month's Listener Choice episode. Um, so, um, Chris, would you like to set this one up? Yes, I would love to set up. Uh, I'm trying to think of something jazzy to say to sort of set up nostalgia, but I'll just say nostalgia. So essentially, we're interested in fantasy and animation's relationship to nostalgia, either a film from your own childhood. We get a lot of suggestions, I think, across all of our listeners' choices and, and sort of themes uh, about films that mean a lot to you, the listeners, and, and sort of that I think that informs your suggestions. But um, a film that I guess evokes a nostalgia for you, or perhaps a film that is itself about, or a film and TV program that is about nostalgia as part of its narrative so either a film that you are nostalgic for perhaps within the fantasy and animation uh, canon if there is such a thing or a, a film and tv program that is um, about it kind of folds nostalgia into the narrative yeah or any other sort of creative way you might interpret the brief we're looking for the relationship between fantasy animation and nostalgia inspired by this week's pick uh, rhubarb and custard um so to let us know your picks and why um do get in touch via uh, twitter facebook instagram or reddit at fan anim research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research that's the same handle across all four platforms as well if you fancy you can use the old-fashioned approach and email us at fananimresearch f-a-n-a-n-i-m research at gmail.com send us a note or indeed if you want a very quick voicemail 30 seconds or less um, and we will attempt to feature as many of them on the show uh, in a month's time as well as of course pick our favorite and do it on the episode so i'm excited to see what everyone's nostalgic picks are going to be yeah, I mean, just shout out mine will be The Witches, um, which is obviously recently being remade with Anne Hathaway. The original Witches um, is my kind of childhood because it terrifies me and I still refuse to kind of watch it. So it's sort of my my nostalgic um, childhood fantasy animation um, um, by in its absence because I ca cannot watch it. So that's my one. That's interesting. Uh, mine, mine would be something like The Dark Crystal, which has the same relationship with me. So there's something about fear, maybe. Nostalgia, fear. Uh, it doesn't have to be a good form of nostalgia. It can be a bad form of nostalgia. We're, we're up for talking about anything, everything. Let us know by the various yeah. channels and means but right now, I think we should get back to the show. Um, 
I was going to on Alex's point of the or the the rules to try and out, outline the rules. Um, and you're right. There are certain episodes where I think where everything is relatively stable. And then I've one of my notes under episode three is everything is personified. And I quite like the sun being an. Uh, it sort of tells us the seasons. He's either wearing a farmer's hat because it's the harvest, or he's wearing a Christmas hat because it's the festive period. Um, but one of the things that I liked about it was the references or the self-conscious references, the deconstructive references to use Wells's term to, um, to animation. Now we always talk about this, that there are, that these are cartoons or cartoons are always about animation in some way, but there are quite explicit examples. So, um, and they have quite long titles. All I know is that they're episode 17 and episode 20, but episode 17 is essentially the characters wake up and they're not colored in. Um, and it's because of the fog and it's the sort of they're all in grayscale. And so they wake up. It's all foggy. It's in grayscale. And it's only when the north wind comes in that the fog lifts and the color arrives. But they qu speak quite explicitly about the fact that they're not colored in rather than it just being a foggy day. And then a few episodes later where um, they it begins with flying swifts in reflected in a pool of water, which is very sort of experimental in the way that it kind of looks. Um, and Custard wants to be a deep pond diver, and he's called Jack Custard, which is probably the best joke of the entire 30 episodes. Um, but it's towards the end because he's you know, the program is as we've talked about previously, it's, it's rhubarb, it's called rhubarb, and and sometimes it's called rhubarb and custard, but rhubarb is the ostensibly the, the hero. But at the end of episode 20. He says something like, carry on like this, because he's talking about Custard's desire to be this deep pond diver, to go on these expeditions and stuff as Jacques Cousteau. He says, carry on like this and you might get your own TV series. And then suddenly we get the titles, but redone as Custard as the centre. And I was I was like, well, this is because I love a bit of self-reflexivity, self-referentiality the citation to the fact that it's not just animated, but it's also a media product. It's a television program with a title sequence. Um, and so I just thought that was, in terms of all the things that the program is is pulling in, we've got these references to Jacques Cousteau and we've got a bit of fantasy and it's kind of countercultural. It's it's uh, the animation style, both of the, the kind of cell animated style, but also the surrealism of that style, the potential surrealism of that style that we previously talked about in relation to stuff like Yellow Submarine. It's also citing the fact that it's a television program that is that has a title sequence that is on uh, Hubbard's Five every you know every week. So I thought that was terrific. I really like those those punctuation points within the program. Yeah, I know what you mean. I um I. I, I, that is an episode that stuck out for me as well. And it's not, it's, it's the, it's the way it keeps winking at you, but it's also like what it's doing with all this because, you know, on one level, quite a lot of the episodes are, are dealing with, I think we talked about this when we did the Peppa Pig episode, but dealing with kind of anxieties and fantasies that, are, that you could associate with sort of developmental children's anxieties over space and place. You know, there's a lot of episodes where, rhubarb doesn't understand that um you know a season has changed and thinks the tree is sick or something because it's autumn or he's hiccuping and he thinks it's an earthquake or, or things like that things that you can imagine playing on sort of childhood fears of of the unknown of, of space and time um and then there are other episodes that seem completely consequence free and they're you know episodes where uh rhubarb has a dream 
that he's um, a cowboy and we get a sort of racist, um, you know, fantasy of cowboys slaying Indians, essentially, um, you know, of its of its time um, or of of. of of a certain time at least um so so but 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 the sort of broader point about fantasy in that episode is that like some episodes seem very wedded in real life consequence albeit in a sort of fantasy framework and some are just free from consequence so there's there's that anarchy going on there as well in the subject matter well i I guess on the on that point of of anarchy and also the relationship between anarchy and childhood um and this is perhaps more true. So I was trying to get my head around this. I think this is more true of, of stop motion animation, and 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 you know, there's there's kind of Britishness of, of stop motion and the the way that it's a, the artisanal qualities of the handmade and how that brings to the fore broader questions of uh, national or regional identity. Again, in the case of something like Ardman. But, you know, Rachel Mosley's book on handmade television makes the point that actually within early childhood studies, handcrafted objects are really important because exactly what you're saying, Alex, they are they are situated within a broader nurturing environment. So, you know, educational learning environments away from mass produced ready made toys to um, and this is comes out of the, you know, the recent Toy Story, you know, Forky toy. You have the toy that is made mass produced and then you have the toy that is individualized and made by hand by um, by Bonnie. Uh, and so Moses argument in the book on handmade television is is that children involved in imperfect um, rather than mass produced or crafted objects are, are kind of using or using those kinds of objects for greater um, imagination or uh, imaginistic thinking, she says, they encourage creativity and open-ended play in a way that mass-produced products do not. And so I wonder whether that's also true, or, although she's making the claim for stop-motion animation, the objectness of, of kind of found objects that come to life and, and that replicates the experience of being in uh, a play playroom where children are playing with with uh, pipe cleaners or whatever it might be, pine cones and and and, and and playing with them in a way that substitutes their function for another. This this stick is both a sword and a horse, and so that that kind of imaginistic play. I wonder whether that's also true of something like rhubarb, which ties back in with what you said, Begita, about this uh, kind of blank space, the power of white space in the program, and how that how the streaky marker pen on the paper replicates that kind of aesthetics of child play, where we are encouraged to embrace in the same way in you know in stop motion we're encouraged to embrace the imperfect object that comes to life it's more interesting that a pipe cleaner and a fork comes to life than a mass-produced woody doll we're sort of embracing within the context of rhubarb this slight hesitancy so Mosley calls it a slight hesitancy and unevenness of the movement created um, with a small object in the hand of a child at play and I feel like that's the aesthetic that something like rhubarb is getting at it looks like a child's drawing and in 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 the nicest way and and when i say child's drawing the kind of expressive potential of that the creative potential of that um the freedom of of that um and so that that kind of ties in the the role of the child's kind of well ties in the role of the child spectator with that white space and that kind of discourse of fantasy i think um yeah, well, if you, I guess it's the, again that Taoist idea of the the leaving blanker space for you to insert yourself. I mean, if you think about Lego, when I was a child, when I was a child, you just got Lego bricks and you had your complete fantasy to make whatever you wanted out of it. Nowadays, it's all a prepackaged 
princess castle kit or whatever and they give you all the instructions and tell you exactly what you're supposed to make out of the lego and you finish this one kit and then you have to buy another kit there isn't the same open-ended freedom so i guess it's about how much freedom you have for your own imagination to run wild with a toy one of the foremost psychoanalytic sort of theories of play, um, Winnicott, uh, Donald Winnicott, sort of talks about the idea of the transitional object in childhood, and they need to be objects that um, that are physical and real and in the world and functional and that the child perceives as, as existing um, and not belonging to them, but also objects with a certain amount of banality and freedom about them so that they can impose things onto them. So like the blankets, the... Um, the dummy, the uh, the yeah, the brick, the Lego brick. Um, one of his therapeutic techniques for for his child patients was to do something called the squiggle game, where he would simply just draw a squiggle um, on a piece of paper and then pass it to them, and they'd be asked to make a picture out of the squiggle, um, and you know then some cod quasi-Freudian interpretations would go on but I quite like the first bit of that at least the sort of uh, the squiggle um, getting it uh, one because it relates to drawing and I'm always trying to find ways to bring things back to, to the drawn um, but also because it, it, it's sort of this idea of, of something that is imperfect is in a way the where, where the imagination starts not in these hermetically sealed objects that that on one level, like 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 a princess castle or a you know all the other sort of you know action toys and things that are out there that that on one level seem to be um, incredibly playful because they're incredibly well designed and they're incredibly just sort of inviting, but actually by being so firmly what they are, they cease to have the opportunity to be anything else. Yeah, there's a lot of other issues in imperfection. I'm always very interested in the Japanese idea of wabi sabi. Mm which is the beauty of something that is old and worn out and broken because it has a history of usage and, um, and, and a solidity and it shows time passing. Um, I'm always struck by that as a different concept to wanting everything brand new and shiny. So on that note, I was going to actually ask you, particularly Vita, because I, I, I've read many times, cited many times your, your drawing animation article and I'd wondered where, where that where something like rhubarb sits in relation to this, because you talk about, on the one hand, drawing being this really important material um, process that seems to be exactly in the same, in the same way as something like Wabi Sabi, it shows time passing, the, the labour of these kind of drawings. Um, certainly that the drawings themselves uh, p- perform, they are rhetorical and they perform, or they have a kind of performative activity, as you say. But also, you know, I know that you've kind of connected up to, to the digital and the digital period of the drawing still being this really important process within largely uh, kind of quote-unquote automated processes. So in, in the way that you've written about drawing and the kind of energy of drawing and how it encompasses different uh, practices and forms and, and tools, is this, is something, is, is rhubarb, Godfrey's rhubarb a sort of, really good example of distilling some of some of um your ideas around the kind of power of drawing because it seems it seems on the one hand yeah to come out of this economic necessity but also it's there's something quite yeah kind of um chunk uh, what's I, I don't know what the word is I was gonna say chunky but I don't mean that and I don't mean clunky either I mean kind of meaty or we've talked about on the podcast previous episodes this idea of kind of a visual crunch and it seems like there's something really material about about rhubarb and, and custard so yeah how does how does rhubarb or does rhubarb fit in with your ideas around the materiality of drawing 
I think, um, well, the materiality of drawing, what I'm very interested in is process um, and process being an important part of the finished product. And I think what I love about animation and why I'm drawn to non-naturalistic forms of animation is I just feel that there's an honesty there. It's saying I am an artifice. I'm not real. Uh, I'm not pretending to be real and suspend your disbelief. Um, rather than pretending to be real and buying into a whole realist ideological construction of the world. I feel there's an honesty and imperfection, and that I think that's what draws me. Um, I mean, could you see it as Brechtian, as bringing in some kind of distanciation? It's um, demonstrating rather than becoming. So, yeah, I think, I think that interests me in, in, um, in Rhubarb. It's not pretending to be a real dog and a real cat. I mean, sorry, what was the point of remaking Jungle Book on the CGI so it looked real? What was the point? Oh, Can you explain it to me? I loved the original cartoon. So the, I suppose this is a broader sort of uh, yeah, question about a shift from one image-making form to another, but I think the the from remembering your writing on drawing and the, the power of, of mark-making, and I really like that idea of, of honesty, that there's something there's something very honest about the materiality of the of the program which allows us to perhaps engage with the or not engage with the fantasy but it uh, rationalizes the fantasy or qualifies the fantasy because we've talked about the rules being kind of all over the place but yeah there are some instances where the episodes are relatively micro in their narratives that that it is it all happens within a particular kind of uh, domestic space there's one episode that's very similar to something like Shaun the Sheep actually where you have a range of characters that are doing things like, well, they want to design, redesign a room and paint. I really like that episode where, episode 14, where they're painting a room and they all get covered in white paint. And so what they end up doing, this is another reflexive device, they then end up painting themselves again. Rather than cleaning the white paint off of themselves, they colour themselves in with the appropriately coloured paint to, again, draw attention to the, um, the well, I suppose, their, their kind of graphic construction. So you have these really small episodes about painting a room and then you have... Um, when we were watching it, um, Alex, you messaged me to just say, oh, of course, there's a reference to kind of Greek gods and Thor and things like this. So then you have the other extreme. Um, and I wonder what the, the, the lines or the, the power of the animated line, which I know that you've talked about, that kind of meta metaphysical possibility of mark making um, that is, as you argue, isn't lost when we move to the digital period, but is obviously something rhubarb is very much about the power of the marks that it makes on the screen. And I wondered how that connected up, if it does. Um, to, to the, the, the fantasy in the, in the show, which is very uneven in the way that, as you said earlier, Alex, it's, the, yeah, the fantasy is, is at extremes um, in lots of ways. Yeah, it makes me think of Duck and Mark, that um, you're talking about the reflexivity yeah. and the white and repainting themselves and recreating themselves makes me think of Duck and Mark. Yeah, but I think what I'm trying to argue is, is um, although I love drawing and I do drawing all the time, is I don't want to valorize a handmade aesthetic over a digital one because I think that's a generational shift. Um, when I first got into computer animation in the 90s, 
Um, there was a generation ruling all of independent animation that forbade you and was not interested in anything computer generated. So I've always been reacting against that. Uh, that's changed nowadays, but I've still got a you know, chip on the shoulder, obviously, from this time. And I think you can be experimental with digital animation. There are different ways to do it. In every form, there's a commercial method of production and there's a non-commercial method of production. And I'm really interested in techniques of um, that are experimental in com computer animation. And it might not be the same as the techniques. So it might not be hand-drawn. It might be working with data, for example. It might be working with um, so-called ugly animation to break the rules of photorealistic CGI. But um, just what I'm very interested in is um, thinking how you might experiment with computer animation that it might be different from how you experiment in drawn animation or collage animation, but it's not better or worse. It's different strategies. Mm. So I think that's that's what I've always been trying to put across. Mm. And there can be a process of thinking and, and computer animation can also have an artistic process and a conceptual side it is possible. You made the fatal error there of mentioning Duck and Mark. So let's now spend an hour talking about that. Um, so, right, I love <laughs> So it's, it's funny you mention that because that's often held up. As, so this is the 1953, I think, um, uh, Warner Brothers cartoon, very famous. It's kind of held up as, as um, Daffy Duck. Well, it's held up as an example of sort of deconstructive um, animation directed by Chuck Jones and essentially shows the world being rewritten and redrawn around Daffy Duck and the camera pulls away uh, and it's revealed to be um, the big Bugs Bunny holding the pen and you have this kind of pen being inserted in pencil and paint and all that kind of stuff and his body is erased and you see the film cells and all this sort of thing. Now, Rhubarb doesn't do any of those things. There are references to the fact that they are animated um, and they are part of a television program, but it's not as intense. But at the same time, because of the material process and the materiality of drawing, and the fact that you see these this uh, these colours exceed the black lines of the outlines, and the fact that it is quite kind of crude and, and um, uh, loose and imprecise, that's a different register of deconstructive animation. It's not. It's it's not that the 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 element of deconstruction is made the stuff of narrative as it is in Duck Amok. It's that the deconstructive register of the film of, of um, the deconstructive register of, of rhubarb is entirely or often, I would say 95% of the time at the level of aesthetics and, and the image. It's not that they are continually referencing their status as drawings, but it's that the images themselves through the nature of their labor and production and the fact that they're drawn are referencing the fact that they are animated. There's something quite folkloric yeah. about that as well, in that the relationship between the narrative, which is, you know, one, you know, even the episodes are called like, um, you know, when rhubarb made a spike, this will happen. There's a determinative quality to the narrative, which gives freedom to the, the storytelling, the animation to, to, to do it, which is which is quite folkloric in its, in its practice. And there's one episode where that is actually kind of dramatized which is where the one where essentially rhubarb becomes i don't know buster keaton for a day and makes a makes a silent movie and, oh. and like the final minute is his movie and it's the one moment the narration shuts up and lets the animation be on its own for a bit so that just that's an interesting dynamic and Godfrey does have this history of reflexivity. So I'm just just was checking the date of this. So he um, made a short film, Do It Yourself Cartoon Kit from 1959. 
it's absolutely amazing and it's kind of satirizing his experience of working in commercials animations it's hilarious and you can see um the influence of who he was hanging out with michael benteen spike milligan people like that and i forgot to say earlier um you know you were talking about you hadn't really heard of him and i was saying well actually he did some quite mainstream things another thing he did that was quite mainstream was a one of his kind of sex films which as i said a controversial nowadays and it was called Karma Sutra Rides Again and this short film was actually shown in cinemas with a clockwork orange so got got major distribution so I forgot to mention that. Alex I totally forgotten the episode that you're referring to episode eight rhubarb finds a camera um, and it, there's one bit that made me laugh out loud which is the essentially when he finds a camera and decides to make a film he then turned up on set late because that's what you're supposed to do which I really enjoyed um, and, and you have to um, shout but, and scream because that's how good directing works and all that kind yeah, of yeah, there's yeah. some interesting um, stuff in that yeah so but you're right that there that's actually an instance where I've written down that there's at the end of the film he's then shows he produces it relatively quickly they get a, a screen together and they watch it the film then jams in the gate at the end so you see the sprocket holes around the side which is very much like duck muck actually um he sets up this hollybush studios and they create this sort of cha- as you said a buster keaton style um chase damson in distress style narrative but that's uh, I, and that actually I, I drew a picture when i was writing the notes for this because that's one instance where he's talking about films and you have a speech mark and you have a dollar sign in it or a pound sign or something it's about how animation there is being used to very much like Felix the Cat or the, this kind of comic book style. Sometimes the words, so it's interesting you said about the radio play, because sometimes the words are visualized, sometimes they're not, they're just spoken, sometimes they're in thought bubbles, but they're as icons. Um, and there's a, an episode later on where uh, he is, I think he's he's playing his violin or rhubarb, I can't remember if it's rhubarb or custard is playing a violin. And as he as he plays the violin, the flowers turn to like jagged lines as if they can't it's screeching and, and everything is and so I, I, there is is something that the formal style of the, the television program is doing that is is it seems very responsive that the world around them goes back to your idea of it being um on uh, like the kind of transformative energy of it that there's something about the world that's always going to respond to the characters within it and so if the character plays music it starts to the world shakes um but yeah, I, th- I think that the, I mean, as we talk about it more, I'm, I'm sort of yeah really interested in in the kind of changeability and the transformative power that the these these pen on on paper has. Um, but yeah, I forgot about that episode. So that's episode eight where he makes a film. I guess we should start to wrap up here. Um, does anyone have any final thoughts about God uh, Godfrey or about um, about the, the show itself? Um, I I have a wormhole which I went down for about twenty minutes, and because it cost me twenty minutes of your life, I'm going to waste thirty seconds of our listeners' lives about crows. Um, there's lots of crows in this. I, I'm obsessed with the crows. I have no answer as to why. Um, I started looking at folklore. Uh, apparently, crows are a massive part of Scandinavian folklore. They became a massive part of English folklore. Um, they're a huge part of British folklore. They often symbol fate and determinism. Um, I have no idea how any of that relation um, relates to the show, but I read an interesting article by Hilda Davidson all about that. That was 20 minutes of my life. That's 30 seconds of yours, but there's lots of crows in the show. That's my final thoughts. Uh, Anyone else more useful than that? I will just answer that with a few words. Nog in the nog. Another of my favourites from this picture. Very fine crows. And um, another thing I just wanted to say about Bob Godfrey, because actually, God, I love Bob Godfrey, (laughs) is that um, he was very um, political 
And um, with that traditional British cartooning, he worked a lot in his later years with Steve Bell, the Guardian cartoonist. And um, on the website, you can see a number of um, animations about Margaret Thatcher and so forth, very political, satirical animations based on the illustrations of Steve Bell. And if I can have one final word, it is that there is so much animation history from Britain, just because Bob Goffrey knew everybody. He knew all these people. He had fingers in every pies. He has got, there's so much legacy there. And um, my colleague Martin Pickles and Tom Lowe, who is Bob Godfrey's grandson, are currently crowdfunding to do a documentary to uh, mark the centenary of Bob Godfrey's birth. So please Google Bob Godfrey Collection Centenary Crowdfunding and give them a couple of quid. I gave them some money. Just, you know, this is our history and um, there's no money around right now. So if you've got a £5 or £10, please give a little bit of money to the Bob Godfrey Collection Centenary Fund so we can get some of this history recorded and kept for the future generations. I'm sure we can stick a link to that in um, our blurb or something uh, on the website as well so people, listeners, can check it out there as well if they um, so wish. Chris, any final thoughts? Only, I mean, as I said, I'm fascinated by the the programme's style and, the, and actually what we haven't talked about which which i think is is sort of an outcome perhaps of the uh program's reduction of uh dialogue you know in lots of ways it's it's all the voiceover really and richard bryce puts on these voices um uh, but also the reduction of space and the the sparseness of the image i think that actually draws attention to some of the principles of of, of animation as a medium so kind of a control of timing of posture of, of like eye movement and holding movements and things like this uh, and so actually that reduced sparseness to, to the program I think really draws attention to the communicative power uh, and subtlety of things like facial gestures and, and, and eye movements uh, and then more broadly animation is this kind of medium of, of pictorial illusionism so yeah I think the kind of condensed nature of it on the one hand yeah it's expressive and colorful because it evokes a child's book um, and child's drawings and in easy to sort of communicate and discern icons and signs but actually um, it really gets us to beyond child's play gets us to the sort of principles of of, of animation as this kind of graphic art form so yeah I think it's a wonderful wonderful um, program and uh, yeah go forth and watch them there's only 30 episodes. Can we end on the theme tune? Can we all sing the theme tune? Go on. Well, we can we can go out with that. Maybe we could then, if Alex does his kind of jazzy editing, we yeah. can be like, goodbye, and then we can go, da-na-na-na, and then you can you know, segue seamlessly. Fine. All right. We'll do that in a second. We will do that in a second. <laughs> a Zoom rhubarb and custard song. Great. Um, uh, Bagita, if, if listeners wanted to find your work out there, how might they access it? I have a blog called expandedanimation.net in which I post uh, different activities that I'm doing. I also have an artist website, bigitahosea.co.uk. Terrific. Right. Uh, you can find us on various social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. And handle is fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, um, as well as on the website, fantasy-animation.org. Uh, remember, the next listener's choice will be in a month's time. And the theme this time is your favorite nostalgic pick than the world of fantasy animation. So lots of ways to interpret that. Film uh, film and TV shows that you have a nostalgic relationship to that deal with the issue of nostalgia on screen or some other creative reason why we should pick it. Let us know via the various means as well as our email address, uh, fananinresearch at gmail.com and we will pick 
one for a month's time and find um, hopefully an equally good guest to the Gita, but that will be difficult given the uh, stuff I've learned in the last hour. Um, that's been us for another week. Birgitta, thanks again very much for joining us on this episode. And now can we do the theme tune? Now we can now we can do the theme tune. All right, okay, are we gonna do it? We're gonna do it on three? Alright. Yeah. Okay, okay, one, two, three. <laughs> oh god right and that's and that's the advert for this week <laughs> okay